Well, uh, as many of you know, if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Paul uh, began his sabbatical this previous week, so we're going to take a little brief um, hiatus, if you will, from the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're starting somewhat of a new series over the course of the fall uh, entitled Life with Jesus. Um, And we do so specifically because uh, we need to hear the voice of the Lord. We need to see our shepherd's face. We need to look upon the greatest hope we could possibly have by looking to Christ. And so with this week, we will start uh, with an introduction to the life of Jesus by looking at the very one that God sent to introduce his very own son, that is John the Baptist, would be the one introducing him. So uh, we are about to take up and read from Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 1. But before we do, let us ask for the Holy Spirit's help in prayer. Gracious Lord, we long to hear the proclamation that John gives forth, make way, for behold, your God comes to you. And so now, O oh Lord, as we look to your holy word, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That is the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. Well, where we come now in particular with this passage really presents for us one fundamental question. And that question is this, what is your hope? And, and, you know, especially in life and as we have conversations with various people, you can pick up pretty quick what their hope lies in, right? Um, All too often here in particular, what's our hope lying in? Well, how well the volunteers play on Saturday, And maybe our hope this year is a little bit greater than it has been before, but it's not much if we're honest with ourselves. Or or maybe our our hope is more fundamental of, well, if I can just get through another week. 
If I can just make it to Friday once more, I will have hope in the rest that I'll have on Saturday. But that never happens, does it? Saturday comes and Saturday goes, and we don't get any more rest, and it doesn't look any better than it did before, and there we are distraught. But here, we have the presentation of the greatest possible hope we could ever seek or ever ask for, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so from this passage, Mark will display for us four reasons to hope in the Lord. Four reasons to hope in the Lord. And the first reason comes to us from verse 1. Hope in the good news of knowing God. Hope in the good news of knowing God. Here's what it says again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, uh, this is likely, uh, some people take this as simply uh, an opening title to, to you know, this particular passage, but others take this to be the overarching, big-picture title of the entire gospel of Mark. Here is what this is about. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, th- this word gospel comes to us from an old English word, uh, w- which simply means good news. But Mark really actually leaves this I- incredibly ambiguous. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? The, the beginning of the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, what he's doing is... is Here's the good news concerning what Jesus does. That's true. But there's, there's more to it than just that. It's not just the good news concerning Jesus, but it's also the good news that is Jesus. He himself is the very embodiment of the good news itself, both its origin and its content. It's... The most fundamental good news we could ever possibly hope for, and here's why. It is reaching to our most fundamental need as human beings. We rest assured and we hope and long for good news of whatever sorts, and there are lots of good news uh, to be had. It's getting cool outside. Fall is swiftly approaching. Praise the Lord. It's rained a lot this past couple of weeks, and things are, are green and lovely, and, and, and our grass is finally growing out front, and things look nice again. These are all good news, but it's not the ultimate in good news. In fact, really, the, the most fundamental element, what it takes for us to have the greatest good news possible is knowing God. That is the most fundamental good news that we could possibly have, that we have a God who has made himself known to us. I I love the way that Augustine um, opens up his his famous work, uh, The Confessions of St. Augustine, and he he says it like this. You, O Lord, he's praying, you, O Lord, have made us in your image, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Augustine has tapped into 
the very nature of the human heart itself. We as humans, there is nothing better for us or more fulfilling or more hopeful than actually finding our rest and knowing God for who he is. And this is a beautiful and wonderful thing. If we're created in his image, then we'll spend our entire lives seeking to be near to the one whose image we've been made in. And Augustine says, you know, so much of your problems in life, so much of my problems, if you know Augustine's biography, was, was Augustine was running around and seeking to figure out what he was about. And he tried everything. Um, the, the sex, drug, and rock and roll kind of thing was, was Augustine's lifestyle in the fourth century. But he goes and he tries everything, and at the end of the day, he finds this fundamental truth. Humans need to know God. But thanks be to God, and one of the very unique aspects of the Christian faith is that God has made himself known. And he's done so in a variety of incredible ways. One, he gives us his very word. We, we don't have to kind of wander around outside and think, you know, I, I, I think God would probably be something like this. Well, actually, the Lord has, has simply spoken and said, this is what I'm like. You want to know me? Here is who I am in, in giving us his word. But there's something actually even more fundamentally beautiful. Um, the, the Lord knows how small we are and how painfully finite we are. And, and if you've ever had uh, you know, an interaction with another human, we know that words are hard. They're difficult. Saying them, processing them, is exceedingly difficult, even though this is the way that the Lord created us to communicate. So what does the Lord do aside from give us his word? He does something even more interesting. Words are difficult to process. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make myself known to you by sending forth my son who's going to take on flesh and he's going to dwell among you. Do you want to know what God is like? Behold the face of Christ. The author of Hebrews will open up his letter and say, you know, the Lord has spoken to us in previous days by prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is the most fundamental aspect of human life, is actually knowing God. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bovink puts it this way, to know God is life, pure life, eternal life. We have a great reason to hope in the good news that we know God. But secondly, we also have this great hope that not only do we know God, but this God comes to his people. We see this in verses 2 and 3. He says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So he, here it, it's spoken of, and, and Mark will give us actually somewhat of a kind of 
hodgepodge of three separate Old Testament quotes, one from uh, Exodus 23, verse 20, the second one from Malachi 3, verse 1, and the third is Isaiah 40, verse 3. And he he takes all of these, these various texts and he brings them together, but what's at the core of all of them is that fundamentally what's being spoken of here is the God who comes to his people in their most desperate hour and sets them free. But what's really interesting about these three quotes and the way that the Lord regularly redeems his people is the amount of agency that's going on here. There are three different characters in these passages. You have the Lord who speaks, but then you have uh, the messenger himself. But there's actually this other one as well. The, The one who's going to actually walk the paths the one who's going to make the way, the one who is setting this path straight of the Lord. Now, some of this gets filled out for us. The Lord speaks, he sends his messenger, and there's also this assumption that the Lord is going to be the one who comes to his people. But how is he going to do it? Well, in the Old Testament, we see great deliverers such as Moses, Uh, We see great kings who delivers people like David. And so here in particular, there's this anticipation, this excitement that there's going to be uh, another shepherd, warrior, deliverer, king from the line of David. And we're swiftly keyed in on who this figure will be. It'll be none other than the very Son of God who comes to set the captive free, to make the way of the Lord straight and easy and flattened so that the Lord comes to his people in this great hurry. But here the joy that Mark is capturing really from from these Old Testament citations, he's saying, these are the sweetest words you'll ever hear. Your liberator is coming to you. Put, put yourselves for just a minute in, in the shoes uh, of Holocaust victims. Sitting there in a concentration camp where you have watched everyone around you die miserable deaths. And you're held captive. And then all of a sudden you hear tanks and planes come flying in. And it's the allied forces who have come to set you free. There would be nothing sweeter to your ears than to hear those tanks rolling in. To hear those foreign accents coming to set you free from your barbed wire and from your captives. And to finally feed you the way that the human body needs to be fed. How much sweeter are these words that John has on his mouth. Make way for the king who's come to set the captive free. This is our great hope, that our our savior, our deliverer, our king has come and he has set us free. These are the sweetest words that we could possibly recite to ourselves in our moments of despair in the entrapments of our sin and our moments uh, of great stress, these words 
are what bring us the greatest hope we could possibly have. Our God and our King has come to us, and he set us free. But there's this third hope that that comes with that. Not only does the Lord come to his people to set them free, but interestingly enough, he comes to bring them out of the wilderness. See this from verses 4 through 6. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. There's a really interesting thing here, you know, especially just previously signing that passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, there's this anticipation that what the Lord is going to do is actually a second exodus. You'll remember the book of Exodus where where Israel has been um, held captive by Egypt and the Lord through, through great signs and miracles and the plagues brings his people out from slavery and captivity and preserves them through the wilderness and brings them into the promised land. Well, in Isaiah, where that passage just came from, there's this captivity. They will be once again enslaved. But the Lord doesn't leave his people enslaved. He doesn't leave them in captivity, and he also doesn't leave them in the wilderness. And so what we actually have here in verses 4 through 6 is the hope, or even this practice, of a second exodus, a new exodus, an even greater one. Look at what you have. You have a Jew with a bunch of other Jews wandering around a wilderness, going through the Jordan River in anticipation of being cleansed from all unrighteousness and entering into a promised land where they'll dwell with God in a promised land. You have them actually repeating the very steps that they had taken to get into the promised land, rehearsing that very act of God's redemptive work. There's a problem, though. The problem is they're heading the wrong way. Uh, They're going out from the promised land instead of coming back in. Now, we'll pick up and see that what's about to happen is Jesus himself will rehearse this exodus, and he'll go through the River Jordan, and then he'll wander in the wilderness for 40 days. Yet this time, he doesn't grumble against God. And then he'll step back in to the promised land, and he'll conquer all the Lord's foes, and he'll tear down the strongholds of Satan, and he'll offer himself up as the once-for-all sacrificial lamb. The greater exodus has arrived. Now, one of the interesting things, though, about this in particular, is especially with the Christian life, this is one of the great conundrums of the Christian faith, is that we're always presented with this question of, are we in the wilderness or are we in the promised land? Because sometimes it seems pretty barren. So, so am I wandering aimlessly in a place far away from the Lord, or have I reached the promised land itself? And interestingly enough, the answer to that question is yes. There is this aspect in which we as Christians are pilgrims and sojourners in a foreign land. 
This world seems wrong. It seems strange. These people don't seem like my people, and this world, strangely, doesn't seem like my home. But there's also this other aspect that the Lord mysteriously and wonderfully is dwelling with his people even now. And some theologians have scratched their head and and wondered, why is this going on? Why do we have both of these things happening, of wilderness and promised land together? And I think it's a great mercy of the Lord, actually. There's nothing better for us than a wilderness. Because it's only in the wilderness that we are stripped of everything that we could possibly place our hope in aside from God. And we see our deep, abounding need that the Lord alone can satisfy my soul. It's only in a wilderness wandering, being pilgrims and sojourners, that we actually are stripped of our idols. It's there that we see, no, it's the Lord who provides me with bread from heaven. It's the Lord who makes quail rain down from fire. It's the Lord who splits the rock and brings forth living water for my soul. It's nothing else in this world. It's only the Lord. He must do that. And strangely enough, in the upside-down kingdom that the Lord presents his people, it's only when we're at that place in one of the most barren wildernesses of the soul we could possibly imagine where we have nothing but Christ and his power that actually it's there that we're in paradise that we're in the promised land, that the Lord has drawn his people near into his riven side and says, I'm the rock. I'm your sustainer. I'm your hope. But this brings us to our our final aspect of hope that we see in this particular passage, and that is a hope of being known by the mighty one. Verses 7 and 8. He, that is John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Hear the word of John here. One is coming who's so much greater than I, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. Like this servant act, if I'm going to bend down and I'm going to take your shoes off, your dirty feet, and I'm going to wash them. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. Because John recognizes this reality. He's not the main point. His point is to point to the main point. John is saying, I've come to just give a a representation. I've simply come to say, behold, the Lord is coming. I'm the herald who goes before the king and says, prepare. The king comes in power and in justice. But one far, far greater than me is coming, who doesn't just baptize with water, he actually baptizes with the real thing. I'm a shadow, he's the substance. 
I come to you to, to, to reenact an exodus. He's the one who's coming to actually bring you out, to do what Scripture has called forth from the very beginning. I point you to a resurrection, but he brings new life. That's what's happening here. So much of the time, you know, growing up in particular, um, you know, people, people would give me this advice, fake it till you make it. I found out that that's pretty terrible advice. Um, you know, something in my house breaks, so I'm going to go fix it, but I don't know how to fix it. So I'm going to fake it until I make it, but what do I do? I just break more things. Um, I, you know, showed up at school oftentimes, you know, early on and, you know, some advice that somebody gave me, fake it till you make it. And then I start teaching and it doesn't land anywhere. Uh, I I work on, I love cutting my grass. And uh, I've got this really old lawnmower that I think I bought at a yard sale for 20 bucks. And one time it it tore up and I was trying to replace the, the pool start. And, um, you know, I was faking it till I make it, and that's in the dumpster now. Faking it until you're making it is only uh, a prolonged venture into faking it some more. It only proves the reality that you're a phony. There's no confidence that you can have in that mantra because it doesn't Work And I think so much of the time that that's exactly what our society has told us to do as far as our hope is concerned. You're in despair. You're distraught. You can't fix anything in this world. So what are we all going to do? We're just going to fake it till we make it. That's never worked, has it? There's wonderful good news of the gospel We have longed for resurrection confidence. A confidence that can't be faked. A confidence that must be rooted in reality. We long for a resurrection confidence, but we do so devoid of resurrection substance. Jesus has come, and he's brought new life. And he's baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he's spoken forth like Ezekiel does in Ezekiel 37 to a valley of dry bones. And he said, lived and bones rise. And sinews gather together and flesh covers the dead dry bones. Resurrection, power, and substance and reality has come. And that is our greatest hope. Our hope is John's hope. May we hear the words of Christ. May we see his face. May we steep ourselves in his glory as we walk a life with Jesus in his power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, you are our only hope in this life. 
nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling naked we come to thee for dress foul we too your fountain fly wash us savior or we die lord you must do this work our hopes and our dreams and our hearts have nothing to cling to except for Christ and Christ alone. And so, Lord, may we live and walk and long for your kingdom to come, that we would see the work of new life and resurrection brought forth in our own lives and the lives of the dying world around us. Be with us now, O Lord, as we come to your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.